0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, the fact that we are here sitting in the chair that we have chosen to sit in tonight is evidence that we desire to worship you by listening to what you have to tell us. We've worshiped. In a number of ways, some of us by giving finances, some of us by giving our time, Um, most all of us by lifting our voices in praise to you prior to this Bible study. And now, Lord, our worship continues as we like the prophet Samuel say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We want to hear what Jesus had to say on this fabulous sermon that has often been called the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, give us ears to hear, hearts to comprehend, and wills to obey. How we love the fellowship of believers when we gather like this. How encouraged we get every time we meet in this capacity. I pray, Lord, that you break down any walls that may be erected in any lives that are here tonight if there's resistance to letting you in or letting you have control, take charge. I pray that your spirit would move during the course of this message. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old saying that says, those who preach by the yard but practice by the inch should be dealt with by the foot. And it seems that Jesus believed in that axiom. Because he says in chapter 5, the 20th verse, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he proceeds in chapter 6 to give us some examples of what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing that the people could see. These were the guys who preached by the yard but practiced by the inch, so Jesus deals with them by the foot. If I were to give this chapter a theme, chapter 6 of Matthew, I mentioned it last week, it would be down with hypocrisy, up with integrity. Or, to state it a different way, Jesus is saying, how dare you live like you live When you say what you say. And he goes through a few different areas where they were preaching by the yard but practicing by the inch. He talks about their prayer life. He talks about fasting. And it's something they like to do and they like to make a display of it. And he talks about giving. Those areas Jesus hones in on. Now, I think it's safe to say that probably every one of us here tonight or even those who are joining us on the webcast or by radio would all agree that if there's one area of their lives that could stand a little bit of freshening up, it would be their prayer life. If there's one area that when we hear the word, we get a little antsy, we wince a bit, it's prayer. All of us desire to have an effective, deeper more intimate relationship with God through prayer. We instinctively believe that prayer works, that it's powerful. But when it comes to doing it, it's another story. Jesus said it well, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And he was speaking to his disciples in regards to prayer. I heard a story years ago about when the gospel first came to an African nation, that the new converts were taught every morning to have daily devotions with the Lord. Go out and pray before starting the day. Get up early. And what they did in this particular village is the new converts were told to go out from the village, somewhere out in the woods, by themselves, find their own spot, and there begin their day so over time as these new converts would get up in the morning and they would scatter from the village to different parts of the surrounding jungle the grass where they had walked out to their spot was killed you could see the pathway that was created by their daily walking back and forth well-worn grooves in the soil as they made their prayer journey for their devotions well because the grass grew and because people would walk on that little path, you could also tell if somebody was slacking off in their devotions because the grass would grow back in that area. And so one of the elders of the churches who was in charge of discipling the converts would, would simply say to a brother or to a sister, if that were the case, and their, their devotional life was slacking off, he would say, grass is growing in your path, brother. Hey, is grass growing in your path, sister, brother? When it comes to relating to the Lord in prayer, would you say, yeah, there's some grass growing there, there's some weeds growing there, I'm not always at it, I'm more sporadic than I am diligent at it. Well, when we get now into chapter 6, and we'll review just a few verses, because we really begin with verse 9, we left off at verse 8. As Jesus is addressing the topic of prayer, something that they had seen scribes and Pharisees do ostentatiously, they also noticed that these same scribes and Pharisees liked to use a lot of words. They sort of treated prayer like holy chewing gum. They wanted to see how far they could stretch it. And they would stretch their prayers and use Repetitive phrases and flowery speeches. And so Jesus says, when you pray, verse 5, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, And your father who sees in secret, he'll reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions or flowery speech or ramble on and on. as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. I read something that interested me. It said... In this article, 57% of Americans say they pray every day. Well, that sounds pretty encouraging. That's over half. 57, that's close to 60. Boy, we're, we're batting pretty good then, aren't we? Not always. Don't be deceived by the number. Because the article went on to say why certain people pray. Some do it out of programming. That's how I learned to pray. My first prayer for years was, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That was it, man. That was as deep as I got. Every now and then, after I learned the Our Father, I'd throw one of those babies in as well and kind of stretch it out a little bit longer. But I prayed out of, out of program, out of rote. Others pray out of guilt. They should say something because they don't have much of a prayer life, so at least I can say I do it. And so they'll do it not out of love, not because they believe it's really effective, but simply because they feel guilty doing it. And so they will pray. Then there's an awful lot of people, I would say in that 57%, that pray out of emergency. You know, They treat prayer sort of like a spare tire. Now you probably, when you drove here tonight, probably, you didn't think much of your spare tire. That wasn't in your mind when you get in your car. It never is until you get a flat tire. Then you think about your spare. That's how people often will treat communicating with God. He's there whenever I'm in an emergency. He's a spare tire I can throw on. God help! That's about as deep as it gets. It ought to be deeper. It ought to be more intimate. In fact, it ought to be wonderful and fun, and it should be, and it is. Now, beginning in verse 9, we have what has been called the Lord's Prayer. And that's where we really begin tonight. A better term is the Disciples' Prayer. This is a prayer Jesus taught His disciples to pray. It's not a, a prayer that He Himself Recited or said his prayer is in John chapter 17 something we've been covering on Sunday morning the last month This is something the disciples were taught to pray And there's a parallel passage to the one we're looking at that's in Luke chapter 11 It's where Jesus teaches this prayer again to his disciples, but in a different context here It's more in a public setting on the Sermon on the Mount He taught it again on a different occasion, when the disciples noticed that Jesus was praying by Himself. So one of the disciples went up to Him in Luke 11 and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Notice, He didn't say, Lord, teach us a prayer, but teach us to pray. Not teach us a prayer to memorize and recite, But teach us to be about the business of praying. Teach us to pray. And so Jesus gave them this, which we're about to look at, beginning in verse 9. You can recite it, but I see it better as a template. It's a template. In this manner, Jesus will say, pray, not say these exact words. But it is a good template, and it's a template I follow when I pray. Um, If you've ever prayed with me, I will often take this as an outline and I will expand upon it and fill in some specifics using this as my guideline and template. And it's a beautiful template. You'll notice there's two parts to it. There's the first part that deals with God. I recognize who you are. I know where you are. I know what you see. I know that you have a kingdom and a will and I submit to that. That's the first part. The second part is about us. Give us this day our daily bread, etc. One of the problems we have is that we are out of balance when we talk to God. We skip the first part and immediately go to the second part. Lord, I have a need. Help now. It's the spare tire approach. That's out of balance. The best way to pray is to begin with God and then work your way toward you. That's a beautifully balanced prayer. One of our problems is simple. We have an I problem. I need this. I want that. I should, etc., etc. So we begin with God. When I was um, a baby, um, my communication with my parents was pretty limited. It was uh, something like this. That's about all I knew. Am I right? Right? You did that. Your kids did that. That's about all a kid... My grandson does that. He's so cute, but that's his communication. He doesn't articulate words. He didn't say, Grandpa, I was thinking just how neat it is to hang out with you. No, right now it's... Now, pretty soon, his communication with his parents and grandparents will develop. It will advance. It will be something like this. I want that. <laughs> Give me that. No. Right? It's better than just, you, you, now, you, you now have something more specific. But you got to admit, it's still pretty limited. That's how I began life. That's how I talked to my parents. But as I grew, my communication grew. And there was a time in my relationship with my parents that the only thing I longed for was just to be with them. And I remember how beautiful it was just to say, Mom, Dad, I just want you to know how much I love you, how much I appreciate you, how great you've been as parents. That's because my communication had developed. Prayer is like that. We might begin saying, I need, I want help now, but hopefully it will advance beyond that and it will sound more like this, beginning in verse nine, in this manner, therefore pray our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now Let's break it apart. We begin our prayers with perspective, the right perspective. Who are you talking to? It's not just, hey, God, I need this, I want that. It's our Father who art in heaven. Now, I've discovered when I approach God with the right perspective, that is, I realize to whom I'm praying, and I realize where he sits. He has a vantage point that I don't have. He's in heaven. I'm on earth. He sees what I don't see. He knows what I don't know. I I find that when I pray with that perspective, I have more faith. I can pray with more faith. As I pause to recognize who exactly I'm talking to. I'm not talking to Joe or Fred or George or my relatives. I'm talking to God. I'm talking to God who is my Father. I have a relationship with Him. I'm His child. And He's in heaven. He has all of the resources needed for whatever I'm going to bring before Him. Now when I realize that, I pray with faith. You remember, the early church was persecuted, threatened really. After they were threatened, told not to preach the gospel, they'd be imprisoned, they were threatened. The church gathered for prayer and they began their prayer saying, Lord, you are God. You made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. Now, they got to their requests and they prayed with boldness, but because they prayed with perspective, recognizing to whom they were talking. Boy, did they pray a prayer of faith. And the Bible says the place they gathered was shaken. Sometimes we pray so languidly. Oh, God. Hi. I won't take advantage. I could go on, but I won't. (laughs) Notice the next little phrase. Hallowed be your name. Holy, sanctified, separate. Your name is great. It's tantamount to saying, I praise your name. Your name is awesome. You are most holy. You are righteous. It's ascribing praise and worth to God. Verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean when I pray, your kingdom come? Well, in one sense, it's it's my prayer for the future kingdom that he promised. He promised a kingdom. He promised that King Jesus would return to this earth and set up shop. And I'm praying for that. I want that to come. And we know when that's going to come. We know Probably, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, chapter 11 of Revelation, when the seventh angel sounded the seventh trumpet, an anthem breaks out in heaven. And a great multitude says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever. This is toward the end of the tribulation period. And then it says, The 24 elders who sit before God on their thrones fall on their faces to worship, saying, We give thanks to you, O God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The tribulation is ended. The second coming of Christ is imminent. The millennial kingdom is right around the corner. His kingdom is about to come. That's true. That in, that's included when I pray your kingdom come. Let's get a little closer. Let's get a little more personal than that. When I talk to God about His kingdom, I'm really talking about Him ruling in my life. Is He ruling in your life? Does He have authority in your life? Have you surrendered your life to Him? Is He the King of you? When you say, your kingdom come, what you're saying is, I want to be a part of that kingdom, and I'm one of your slaves, I'm one of your servants. I want your kingdom to come here, now, to me, and your will to be done here, now, with me, and in me. You see, a true Christian is someone who has undergone a kingdom shift. They have shifted from focusing on the here and the now and the temporal, and it's all about them and their agenda and their happiness, to God's kingdom. Jesus will say at the end of this chapter, if we get to it tonight. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So notice the flow of the prayer. I begin recognizing that I'm talking to God. I know where He sits. He's in heaven. He has the grand advantage and perspective of all. He knows and controls everything. Then I filter every request through His ownership of the world, of me, and I want His will accomplished in me. Not my will accomplished in heaven. His will accomplished on earth. That's the flow of this prayer. Verse 11. There's a change now. Notice the change In the possessive adjectives from yours to us. The first part is about God. The second part is about us. The first part is hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And now you'll notice it's give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. There's a change that takes place. Give us this day our daily bread. At first glance... That little phrase in this prayer seems really irrelevant for us living in modern America. Give us this day our daily bread. Usually we don't have a problem with our daily sustenance. Usually our problem is we're on diets. Oh, God, restrain me from eating that. (laughs) Keep that dessert away from me. Help me, Lord, not enter into temptation. But in that day and age, when they lived day by day, hand to mouth, the idea was, I never outgrow my dependence upon God. I like that. He never taught us to pray, give us this month, our bi-monthly paycheck, but give us this day, our daily bread, a daily acknowledgement that the meals, the money I spend, the friends I have, the resources I enjoy... God has given them to me today. Here I am with them. Give me what I need, Lord. Now, God promises to take care of your needs. Do you realize that? Whatever you need in life, God promises to care for your needs. He never promises to care for your greeds, but your needs. I know. You're saying, "Oh, but but Lord, I need the new iPhone 4S. I need it. It's a real need. I can't survive without it. I know it's going to be tough, but you can. Whatever you need, God will provide. Timothy said, with food and with clothing, with these we will be content. Will we? Give us this day our daily bread. And, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's interesting that Jesus intertwined vertical forgiveness with horizontal forgiveness. Lord, as you forgive me, I'm forgiving others. Forgive me, Lord, and with that forgiveness that I receive from you and stand in today, with that I will be generous to overlook faults, misgivings, bad words of other people. Vertical and horizontal forgiveness are linked. Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And he'll amplify that in, in just a few verses. And do not lead us into temptation is the next phrase, but deliver us from the evil one. Don't let me be tempted, Father, above what I'm able to resist. I trust in the leading of your spirit. Not not to put me in a place that that is too tough for me. Now, some places you know are too tough for you. It's not like you have to say, Lord, I really have a problem dieting and I'm going to walk into that bakery. So, Lord, walk the other direction. Some of you who deal with lust, don't pray that as you're walking toward the magazines or flipping late-night channels. Turn it off. Change activities. The idea here is don't let me get into a situation where I'm tempted above my ability to resist. Now, notice the prayer ends like it begins. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, not all of your Bible translations, if you don't have a New King James, if you have an NIV, NLT, etc., New American Standard, doesn't include that. It's because that last little part is not in all the ancient manuscripts. So some versions leave it out. Mine includes it. I prefer it. Um, I prefer it for this reason. Number one, it doesn't contradict any major truth or doctrine of the Bible. Number two, it's perfectly fitting to end as we begin. I begin with God. I work my way into my needs, filtered through His will and His kingdom, asking Him for forgiveness, etc., But I close and worship again to him. Verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, can we stop the argument about that person that God calls you to forgive not being worthy of forgiveness? Can we just not go there? Well, I don't think their repentance is genuine, so I'm not going to forgive. Or, well, they said that, but then they did it again and again. They keep repeating the offense. I'm not going to forgive them. You must. You must. Jesus said if a person sins against you and says he repents, doesn't even repent, just says it, you forgive him. Even if he does it, Seventy times in a day. Now imagine that. If I were to walk up to you after the service and and slug you. And they go, oh, I'm so sorry. I have these impulses sometimes. (laughs) I pray about them. I'm not always in control of them. Would you forgive me? Oh, sure. No problem, Skip. And then as soon as you're walking away, I slug you again. Harder. Oh, I'm so sorry. Now, if we keep this up after a few times, you're going to go, you are not sorry. You're a nutcase. You're dangerous and I'm out of here and I don't forgive you. You might be tempted to do that. Forgiveness is not optional. It's intertwined. Vertical and horizontal forgiveness. Let me put it to you this way. The proof that we've been forgiven is that we are forgiving. We forgive. We extend what has been extended to us. I forgive you because God has forgiven me an unpayable debt. I could never pay it back. I could never earn my way to heaven. I could never work my way. God has cleared the slate. Because He's done that, I will forgive you. David said in Psalm 66, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I hold on to sin, sin hinders my relationship with God And sin hinders my ability to have an effective prayer life. My holding on to an unforgiving heart. I mentioned last week, a pack of grudges is the heaviest thing you can carry around in life. So as soon as you feel that feeling come up, you pray for your enemy as we covered last week. You tell the Lord, I forgive you. You write that person or when you see that person, I love you, I forgive you. If it comes up, just keep extending that. Well, I don't feel like it. You're not said to, you didn't say feel like it. just said do it. Those are your marching orders and mine. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. Get this. Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Some Pharisees in those days would actually paint their face sort of a white makeup. So they would look kind of sickly, kind of gaunt, kind of white, gray makeup. They'd put it in certain places so that when you looked at them, they just looked sick, sad. And so you would think, oh, they haven't eaten in a while. Man, are they Holy. That's what they wanted you to think. They were doing it to be seen, so they would disfigure their faces. They'd put on a show. That's what the word hypocrite means, remember? It means a stage actor, hypocrites, one who, who puts on the face on a stage before people. Don't do that. Don't disfigure your face. Jesus said, When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting it's your father who, see, who is in see, the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It's very unfortunate that there was a time, even in church history, when sadness was equated with spirituality. If you look sad, if you look mean, if you look mad, you must be a Christian. So people wore black, not because it was the new blue, it was like a fashion statement, it was slimming. They wore it because it was a garment of mourning. So they wore black because it's what holy people wear. Black robes. Don't smile. Act mean. Sadness is next to godliness. No, it's just weird. (laughs) Shouldn't joy be what marks us? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Blessed, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn shall be comforted. The meek, etc. Those aren't God's rules. Those are man's rules. An outward appearance of looking sad or disconnected. They disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Now something else, you'll notice that Jesus said, when you fast, not if you fast. It appears that fasting is the norm, not the exception. What is fasting? Fasting is deliberately withholding a meal or a portion of food. There was the Daniel fast, there were different kinds of fasts. But deliberately withholding physical sustenance that I might focus upon spiritual realities. I'm denying my flesh. I'm denying my appetites so that my appetites become my slave. I don't become their slave. That's what it is. It is not a holy diet. It's not a way to lose weight in Jesus' name. (laughs) Fasting is a way to deny the flesh that I might focus on spiritual things. And it's not easy. The Bible speaks about it about 60 different times. Now, do you know that there's really... No direct commandment to fast. In fact, even in Judaism, even in the Old Testament, the Jews never had to fast except for one day a year. One day a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, there's a phrase in the Old Testament. It says, on this day you shall afflict your souls. That's all it says, afflict your souls. And they took that to mean we must withhold food from our bodies. So they went on a fast, 24-hour fast. One day a year. Now that becomes interesting to us in modern day history because back in 1973 was the Yom Kippur War. Have you heard of that in Israel? The Yom Kippur War of 73. What happened is on that day when some of the Arab neighbors, chiefly the ones who attacked were Syria and Egypt, knew that Israel would be fasting, that the nation would be shut down, there there would be no public transportation, no taxis, no buses, No communication, no broadcasting. Twenty hours into the Yom Kippur fast, Egypt and Syria attacked Israel, wanting to catch them off guard to attack them and get the land of Israel back under their control. A few days later, Israel won that war, but it was based upon the whole idea of the afflicting of the souls, that one time of year when they fasted. Okay. Okay. By Jesus' time, many of the Pharisees, guess how often they fasted? Any any clue, any idea, any guesses? Twice a week. Who said that? You get an A. (laughs) Twice a week they fasted. You remember in uh, Luke, I think it's 18, the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. He boasted in the fact that he fasted. Now, the two days they usually chose to fast were the second day of the week and the fifth day of the week. And that is because those were the biggest market days when the most people would be around. So they would see them fasting. They'd their faces, walk through the market. People would think they're Holy Joe or Holy um, Shmuel or whatever their name would be. Jesus said, you don't be that way. In verse 19, he talks about giving, about treasures. He's speaking about their finances. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is There your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Okay, a few ground rules about this whole giving and money thing. Number one, having money is not evil. Being wealthy is not sinful. The Bible never says money is the root of all evil. I've heard that quoted by so many people for way too long. The Bible never says that. It says in First Timothy chapter 6, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's very different, isn't it? It's not the root, it's a root of all kinds of evil. And it's not money, it's the love of money. I know lots of people who don't have money, but they love it. And they will do anything they can to strain and get it. It's not, I'm not talking about making ends meet and providing for your family. I'm talking about the whole mindset that they serve it. They want it so badly, they covet it. You can love money and not have it. You can love money and have it. But, Abraham was wealthy. If you think about Abraham in the Old Testament, he was on a par in terms of wealth, in terms of his personal estate, with the kings of Canaan, he had 318 people on his paid staff that was his own militia, his own army. He went to war with them. Paid soldiers. 318 paid out of his pocket. The boy had bucks. Joseph in the Old Testament, very wealthy. Probably, if I'm not mistaken maybe the second wealthiest in the world, if the pharaoh of Egypt. There were other kingdoms at that time, but Egypt was probably the most wealthy at that time. He was second in command. He was prime minister. He probably, with what he had access to do, was the second wealthiest person on earth. It wasn't wrong for him to have that. He used it for godly means. So Abraham, Joseph, and then there was Job. Job was exceedingly wealthy. God prospered him. He lost it all. But even after he lost it all, the Bible says God prospered him more in the latter days than at the beginning. God blessed him. It's not money. It's not wealth. It's the love of money that's a root of all kinds of evil. Now, going back to the text, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures. The idea is hoarding. In Greek, it reads this way. Literally. Do not treasure treasures. It's a play on words. And the word for treasure is thesaurus. Ever heard of a thesaurus? Do you have a thesaurus at home? I live in those babies, those little word finders. A thesaurus means a treasury of words. That's what it means to us. But in Greek, it just means a treasury or an abundance of something. So the idea is hoarding or treasuring or serving finances, goods, resources. Don't treasure treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, use your money now. To send ahead into heaven treasures waiting for you in your heavenly reward. Use your money now for kingdom purposes. Spend your money now to expand the kingdom of God, to do God's work. And in so doing, you are sending your treasures ahead, where neither thieves or moth nor, uh, nor rust can destroy, or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's a fun little comparison. Compare tonight, in your mind, two graves, two tombs. You've heard of the tomb of King Tut, the boy king of Egypt, King Tutankhamen. A very ornate grave was found, a very ornate sarcophagus, or wooden casket overlaid with gold. Egyptian pharaohs, including this one, King Tut, believed in the afterlife, and believed that you could bring treasures from earth into heaven. So they overlaid the walls and the ceilings with gold and silver and bronze, precious metals and porcelain, and ornately inscribed gold-covered sarcophagi. That's plural for sarcophagus. You don't say sarcophaguses. Just an FYI. And so the whole idea is I'm hoarding up treasures because I'm going to bring them with me in the afterlife. Compare that tomb with the tomb of Jesus. Simple rock-hewn tomb. No gold in it. No silver in it. No treasures in it. No body in it. He rose from the dead. His whole life was spent on something eternal, far outstripping that which is mortal and material and temporal. One died... And made it into eternity without his treasure. That was King Tut. One conquered death. And enjoys all of the riches, all of the treasures of heavenly worship at his Father's right hand and will give to us rewards when we get there. So, makes perfect sense. Use your money for eternal purposes. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. Now, The context doesn't break. He's still dealing with riches. He's still dealing with your money, your resources, your giving. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's an argument from lesser to greater. If you have bad eyesight or if you have... Blindness in one or both eyes, you live in a dark world. You don't get much light transmitted in. You are incapacitated or partially so. But, arguing from lesser to greater, if the darkness originates from within you, it's not from the outside, not getting in your eyes, that's the lesser. The greater is if there's darkness originating from within you. How great is that darkness? It's, it's the idea of something that is physical and something that is spiritual. It's greater spiritually to be blind. And we're blind when we focus on that which is only material and temporal and physical. Instead of eternal. What we focus on determines how well we see. People are blind because they only focus on the material, the temporal, the physical. But when you can focus on that which is eternal, you can really see life as it ought to be lived. You make proper choices. Your eye is good. You see clearly. You're not short-sighted, focused just on the here and the now. You have perfect 20-20 vision, up close and far away. Sort of like in sports, you know. They used to tell me, sometimes in vain, keep your eye on the ball. Sometimes I'd connect when the baseball was thrown over the plate and I had enough hand-eye coordination, I could belt that thing but even even when the ball wasn't moving, like in golf, keep your eye on the ball. Because whatever your eye is on, you're, you tend to hit what you look at. So what are you looking at? What are you aiming at? How do you live your life? Where are you, where, where are you putting your focus, your emphasis? Spiritually or materially, temporally? Here's the bottom line principle. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So here's the bottom line. Bottom line isn't what do you own? The bottom line is, are you ready? Who owns you? Or what owns you? Have you become enslaved to a lifestyle? Have you become enslaved to a pursuit? Have you become enslaved... To the temporal, to a relationship? Or does God own you? Are you serving Him? Is He your master? What is your master passion? What is your overarching goal? No one can serve two masters. It's a basic principle of life. The Roman Empire had lots of slaves. In fact, the imagery of Jesus used, no one can serve two masters. Everybody in that crowd, they picked up on that right away. Because it is estimated that half of all citizens in the Roman Empire were slaves owned by masters. Half. Something about being a slave or a servant in those days, there were no part-time slaves. You can't say, well, I'm a slave part-time and I own a business part-time. can't do that. If you're a slave, if you're a servant, you are completely and utterly and totally controlled by another will. You can't serve two masters. You can't be a part-time Christian. You can serve the Lord God, or notice the word, you cannot serve God. And mammon, that's an Aramaic word. Mammonah is the original word. We say mammon. It simply means riches. What you store up, material stuff, money, you could say. You can't serve God and money. Therefore, I say to you, therefore, I say to you, I love this part. It's the best part as we close up this chapter. Do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now you notice the command. Jesus tells you not to do something. He says, therefore I say to you, do not worry. Now the way it is written originally in the original Greek language is to stop an action that is already going on. Boy, does Jesus know human nature. It's as if to say, I know most of you folks out there are worrying, so stop it. Cease that activity. Stop encumbering your mind. Stop being weighed down by anxious thoughts and worry. And he says, look at the birds. Look at the birds. They neither sow. Have you ever ever seen a worried bird sweating, wringing its little claws? Saying, honey, the rent on this nest is getting astronomical. I'm not trying to marginalize any financial difficulties you may be going through with your housing. I understand the market. But you have a God who promises to take care of you because when you begin praying, you say, our what? Our Father in heaven. He's your Father. He's not the bird's Father. Notice what he says. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God is not their heavenly Father. He's not the heavenly Father of birds. He's the creator of birds. That's the relationship a bird has with God. Creator, that which is created. You, on the other hand, have the relationship of creator, the one who is created, but also father and child of God. Different playing field. Different rules. If your father feeds them, don't you think your father is going to take care of you? That's the implication. He's your father. Which of you, verse 27, here's a question. Which of you, by worrying, could add one cubit to his stature? A cubit is 18 inches. If a person was worried because he or she is short, man, I wish I was taller. And <laughs> let me just say, I'm six foot five. I have bumped my head. Throughout my entire life, (laughs) flying on airplanes is murderous. Most cars I don't fit in well. Okay, so you're thinking, I want to be taller, I want to be taller. Is that going to make you taller? Are you going to grow 18 inches if you worry about it? No. Now, some translations prefer to see this as length of time rather than length of physical stature. And so they will say, like the NIV, which of you, by worrying, can add one day to his life, or the New Living Translation, I believe, one moment to his life. You're not going to add length to your life by worrying about it. In fact, last time I checked, you'll probably live less if you worry a lot. All the studies say that stress and worry will shorten your life. Ever heard of Dr. Charles Mayo? He started a little clinic called the Mayo Clinic. He said something interesting. He said, Worry affects your circulation, your heart, your glands, your nervous system. I have never met a man or known anyone who has died from working too much, but I've known plenty who have died from worrying too much. That's a direct quote. Which of you, by worrying, it does no good. It's fruitless activity. Verse 28. So why do you worry about clothes? Boy, that's a good question. Just tuck that away in your mind next time you're at the store looking at the latest fashion and and just getting stressed out because it didn't look quite right, it didn't fit quite right. Okay. So why do you worry about clothing? Now, husbands, be careful with that one. I know you're tempted to go, I'm going to underline that one. I'm going to quote that scripture next time we go shopping. Don't do that. Or we'll see you for marriage counseling the next week. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Come to Israel with us in the spring and see the wildflowers. Amazing. And yet, in this day and age, that day and age, they had a short lifespan. They grew up, they blossom. A couple of days later, the sun would scorch them and they would dry up. They would be then picked up and used as fuel in bread ovens. That's it. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Test your memory. What were you worried about exactly one year ago today? Now, some of you will be able to answer that because of the immense trial you were in. But I would wager that most of you here are not able to give me a clear answer what were you worried about exactly one year ago today. And now you get the understanding. It's fruitless activity. Why bother engaging in it? Now, what is the solution to it? Quickly, and we'll end with this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now that's, that's the cure. Notice it begins with the word but. In other words, a word of contrast. Stop worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Don't do that. But rather, and here's the cure, seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, redirect your energy from worrying about your life to working for God's kingdom. If I were to paraphrase Jesus saying this, first things first. Live by priorities. First things first. What's first? God, His will, His kingdom. Here's the deal, Jesus says. I'll make you a deal. If you make your priority, my stuff I'll make as my priority your stuff. All these things will be just added to you. I'll give them to you. If you seek first the kingdom and you're thinking about spiritual things and how to expand my kingdom and how to win people to Christ and how to further with your life, your finances, etc., my kingdom, I promise you that everything you need will be added to you. Now we reverse that. We seek first our kingdom. We seek first what we need, all this stuff, and then just expect the kingdom of God to be added to us. Jesus said, here's the deal. Just seek first me and my kingdom and I'll give you everything you need. That's a great deal. It's a great exchange. Keep your focus. And God says, I will provide what you need. When was the last time you made the kingdom of God your ultimate priority? You filtered your life through the kingdom. You sought to bring people into the kingdom. You sought to expand and disciple people within that kingdom. May I remind you what Paul said in Acts chapter 20 when they said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you there. He said, why are you crying, breaking my heart? I'm ready to die. Even give up my life. And he said in Acts chapter 20, Neither do I count my own life dear to myself that I might finish my course or race with joy and the ministry that I have received of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given me a task. I want to finish the task. I don't care what happens. My life isn't mine. It's His. I've given it to Him. I'm seeking first the kingdom. And I trust that this will be fulfilled. Therefore, we close it off. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Blessed is the one who is too busy in the day to worry and too sleepy at night to do the same. Work for God. Serve the Lord. Expend your energy for eternal things and fall asleep in peace. Now, The only one tonight who really should be worried is the unbeliever. You who have not surrendered your life to Christ. You're not serving him as your master. You've got another master and it's probably yourself. Your agenda. You've got your life. This is my deal. I want to do my thing. You have become your own God. You worship that God quite regularly. You're all about attending to that God quite regularly. I'm going to ask you tonight, I'm going to challenge you to make a kingdom shift from your kingdom to his kingdom. You want an exciting life? You want want a life that will be filled with peace and adventure? Seek first the kingdom of God. I mean, really. And then buckle your seatbelt. You will be on one crazy, awesome ride. One wonderful journey. But if you don't know the Lord tonight, you really should be worried. And if you're not, that's the scariest place I can imagine. Let's all bow our hearts and our heads. Father, The words that Jesus spoke, they live. They are powerful. They're sharper than a two-edged sword. They, they pierce our emotions down to our very spirit, our very core. We are evaluated by them. We are judged by them. I thank you, Lord, for your provision. We bless you and worship you that the kingdom that you set up inside of us will eventuate in a worldwide literal, physical reality one day. Until that day, Father, may your will be done in us. May your kingdom be realized in us as your subjects. Father, we pray for those who may be with us tonight who don't know Jesus. They've heard about Him. They like songs about Him. They like listening even to messages about Him. It brings them sort of a comfort. But some who have gathered here tonight or watching via the live stream or even listening by radio have never made that, that step over the threshold of saying, Jesus, Be my Savior and my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. I give you my life, my heart. And tonight you are calling them. Lord, I pray that they would find the peace, the satisfaction, the richness of life that they've longed for. And they find it tonight as they make Jesus their Lord, their Master. If you've come tonight and you don't know Christ yet, but you want to know your sins are forgiven, that if you were to die, you would be directly in the presence of God, you can live without fear. You can face every day without fear. You can live with hope. We want to give you that opportunity to know Jesus. Or, if you remember being close to Him at one time, but you've walked away from Him and you need to come back to Him tonight, and dedicate your life afresh. Raise your hand up in the air right now as we close. Just raise it up right now and hold it up for a moment. God bless you and you and you toward the back on my right and on my far right over here. Anybody else? Yes, sir, you. Yes, ma'am. And then over on the left and toward the back. Raise your hand up. If you're in the family room or in the balcony, God bless you. Lord, for hands that are all around this auditorium, every one of these... Our individuals, God bless you, way in the back. How thankful we are and we pray that their lives would never be the same, that there would be incredible change that happens not only tonight, but as they grow, they become more like Jesus. And help us all that that would be true with us. In His name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. As we sing this final song, several of you tonight raised your hands up. I want you to get up from where you're standing. Just say excuse me to the person next to you. Find the nearest aisle and come stand right up here. Our pastors will be here to gather and greet with you. Come right up here right now. I'm going to lead you in a prayer tonight to receive Christ as your Savior. Don't waste any more time. Don't linger. Come right now. Just get up out of your seat where you're standing and stand right up in the front. I saw people raising your hands just a moment ago. Follow that up. Put feet on that faith. Those of you who have walked forward I'm looking at a whole bunch of you right up here in the front I want to give you this opportunity now to receive Christ so I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer after me I'm going to pray it out loud I'd like you to pray it out loud I want you to say these words from your heart and you say these to the Lord you're asking him to come in and to take control you ready let's do it let's pray Lord I give you my life I admit I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he shed his blood, that he paid for my sin, and that he rose from the dead. And so I turn from my past, I leave it all behind, and I turn to you as my Savior. And my Lord, to seek your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.